one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the Bible is the world's hatred of the Jews. And it's not because I agree with that, it's because God himself predicted at the very beginning of the Bible's story that it would be so. It would be continual conflict between uh, the descendants of Isaac, the son of promise given to Abraham, and the descendants of Ishmael, the son who was born to Abraham but not according to the promise, and that has come to pass and every generation sees the fruit of it. There seems to be almost an irrational fear and hatred of the Jews in the world, not only among the Arabic peoples who are the descendants of Ishmael, but among all the peoples of the world. And this morning what I want to think about is not so much the relationship of all the people, groups of the world with the Jewish people, but specifically about the relationship between Christians and Jews. Those of us who uh, confess that Jesus is the Messiah and our Savior, what is our relationship supposed to be like with the Jewish people? How should we treat them? Are they God's chosen people, as uh, is sometimes claimed in the Old Testament? Well, it's important to understand as background, you can, you can kind of picture the Bible story in three unfolding stages. And each stage gives us a picture of the people of God as they existed at that time under that arrangement between God and human beings. The first is that long period of time, about three quarters of the Old Testament, that described the nation of Israel. It is sometimes called the ancient Hebrew religion or the Old Testament religion. It's this covenant that God began at Mount Sinai, and it lasted until 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed and the nation of Israel were dispersed out of the land by the Babylonians. The second time period is what followed that. It's uh, the period of Judaism. Judaism arose after the destruction of the temple when a remnant of the Jewish people who had been dispersed into the lands returned to the land of Palestine and sought to reestablish the, the nation again. And they wanted to be known as uh, Judahites, people from the tribe of Judah, which had been the largest and most faithful, relatively, of the tribes before the dispersion. And so they were called Jews. And that time period lasted from the return to the land until the coming of Christ. And then when you read the Bible, the New Testament is uh, the story of those who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus came as a Jewish man himself, presented himself to the nation as uh, the Jewish Messiah. And that is the period of the church. The New Testament describes the church. And uh, the church is the people of God during the present time. And so those last two groups that we want to think about, what is the relationship between the Jewish people who arose during that time period between the exile and the coming of Christ, the last 500 years before Christ, and, and the church, those of us who are now believers in Jesus. We live during the church age, that is the time between the first and second coming of Christ, and what is our relationship with the Jews meant to be like? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that people understand it differently. Some Christians think that there's a, a sharp distinction between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. That in fact they are two separate people, sometimes called God's earthly people, the Jewish people, and God's heavenly people, the church. That is called dispensationalism. It's not my own understanding. 
Some people believe, on the other hand, that the church has simply replaced Israel, that uh, Israel, the Jewish people, the physical descendants of Abraham, lasted until the coming of Christ, but when they rejected him, they have been set aside, they no longer receive any of the promises, and those promises are all given to the church today, and that's a form, only one form, of what's sometimes called covenant theology. But I believe that that uh, the church is not separate from Israel. There's only one people of God throughout all of history. But neither does the church replace Israel. Rather, I would say that the church completes everything that Israel was meant to be. That in the promises made to Abraham, he promised that through his descendant, his seed, the offspring of Abraham, all of the nations on earth would be blessed. And they all become a part of the church, including Jews and Gentiles, in one body after the coming of Christ. Now, it's important to understand that simply because how you understand the relationship between the church and Israel is going to have a lot to do with how you understand our relationship to the Jewish people now. Now, this passage gives us insight into that because it's a a passage in which a distinct promise is given to a church about the Jewish people at least those living in their city. Again, I want to reiterate, the the seven churches of Revelation are seven letters dictated by Jesus to the Apostle John. They were written to individual historical churches, that is, in what was called Asia, a portion of what today is uh, Turkey, Western Turkey. There were these seven cities, and each of them had, at the end of the first century, around 95 A.D., a church that existed there. And however you understand each of these letters, they had to have been fully applicable to the people reading the letter the first time, the people to whom it was written. But there's another level on which you have to read the seven letters. They are not only written to individual churches, they are all written to all of the churches. And so they have applicability throughout the church age in giving us an understanding of how Christ diagnoses the condition of churches. His followers will meet in groups that are called churches throughout the church age, and Jesus gives us an overview of all of the different ways in which he can commend or condemn his followers at different time periods. This is the second of the positive letters among the seven. And in the seven letters, the second one, the church to Smyrna, and the sixth, second to the last, are both positive churches. That is, Jesus gives a fully positive affirmation of where they are at despite their weakness, and he gives them only encouragement. It does not include negative aspects of their lifestyle, their doctrine, or anything like that. Now, this one opens, as they all open differently, with a self-description by Jesus. And he writes, or he commands John to write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And in saying these words, he reveals himself in distinctly Jewish terms, the one who holds the key of David. That is, he is the Messiah. And when he says that he opens or he shuts, this key is the authoritative access to the presence of God. So Jesus presents himself as the Messiah who determines the destiny of all people. He either opens the door of access into the kingdom of God, or he closes it. And then he immediately begins to give them 
and assessment. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And following on his self-description, this obviously means that he has opened to the believers in Philadelphia meeting in this church the door of the kingdom of heaven. He has given them a relationship with God. They possess Christ as their Savior. They have eternal life, and they are God's people. And he goes on, and he gives them a distinct promise. Verse 9, look at it with me. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, he calls the local synagogue in the city of Philadelphia, which, by the way, there still is a city in the Turkish, excuse me, a synagogue in the Turkish city, in which, uh, which was called Philadelphia in the New Testament. He, he calls that synagogue a synagogue of Satan. And the people who are there say they are Jews, but are not. They lie. And that's a very harsh assessment. In fact, it sort of offends our present sensibilities. And if someone said something like that today about the local synagogue, they would be uh, called out by the media and on various forms of media. But there are two things you have to remember. The first is this. This is used at the very beginning of the Christian movement. It is 60 years into it. This is the last book written in the New Testament, about 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. But it is written at a time when the Christian movement is still a tiny sliver of a minority within the Jewish synagogues or among the Jewish people. The original Christians, those who came uh, out of the ministry of Jesus, were all ethnic Jews themselves. And when they first went out, they went into the synagogues and they began to preach the gospel. So the relationship of Christians to the synagogue is still being worked out. Although by this time, it appears that the synagogues have separated, the Christians have separated and formed Christian synagogues, as the word is used in the book of James, chapter 2. But the Christian, the tiny Christian minority at this time to whom John is writing, is uh, at present, at that point, being severely mistreated, cruelly mistreated by their Jewish compatriots, relatives, friends in the city of Philadelphia. So it's not a phrase that should be used today because we could not ever conceive of that historical situation in, uh, coming again. We are not a tiny minority compared to the Jewish people. And the second thing you have to understand is Jesus is simply saying something that the Apostle Paul himself also said when he says the synagogue of Satan, made up of people who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. And I want to note it for you. It's in Romans chapter 2. You needn't turn there. But here's what Paul, a Jewish rabbi, wrote when he summarized the Old Testament. He said this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Now, teaching as the rabbi that he was, Paul was simply noting that in the Old Testament, the promises were never given to the Jewish people simply as the physical descendants of Abraham. 
it, it, there was no promise in the Old Testament that said, boy, you're lucky you were born in the right family. And those Gentiles, they're unlucky they were born in the wrong family. There's nothing like that. The promises in the Old Testament were written to the physical descendants of Abraham, who became the Jewish people, physical descendants who also believed in the promises given to Abraham. The specific and unique truth about Abraham was that he was the person who believed, the first person to clearly believe that God can raise the dead, we're told in the, in the New Testament. And it is that faith and the promises that God gave for a physical descendant of Abraham that made them what Paul says here is a true Jew, one who is both physical and spiritual. So the Jewish people did not have an automatic relationship with God unless they were faithful to the promises of Abraham's promise-keeping God. Now note, at the beginning of the New Testament, when its pages open, we are introduced to a number of people who are Jewish people, but they are evidently waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. Not only the parents of Jesus, but, but when uh, they take their infant son, the child Jesus, into the temple, these two old people meet them, a woman and a man, Anna and Simeon, and they both give praise to God for fulfilling his promises and allowing them to live long enough to see the Messiah with their own eyes. So there were among the Jewish people a large number who were waiting for the fulfillment of the promises. But what Jesus does in this passage is, having noted that they are marginalized, these Christian believers here, that they have been faithful to him, for though you have little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, he gives to them a specific promise. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down to you before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, one could think that what's being talked about here is some sort of humiliation of the Jewish synagogue in uh, Philadelphia, that there's going to come a point for some reason in which they would acknowledge that the church is right. You are the recipients of the promises that were given to us in the past, to our people. But that would not be right for one simple reason, and that's that the words translated bow down are used throughout the book of Revelation to refer always to the voluntary worship of God. And it shouldn't be any different here that it is describing a situation in which this members of the Jewish synagogue will come to the church and they will voluntarily worship God. That is, they will be converted. They will accept that, in fact, what the Christians have been telling them is true. Jesus promised to this unique, specific church in uh, western Turkey at 95 AD or so is that they are going to have people who are in opposition to them, friends and relatives and neighbors from the Jewish synagogue, come to them and acknowledge that they are right and that the promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Now, after all, this is the distinction between Christians and Jews. It's all over Jesus the Messiah. It is the simple historical fact that when Jesus appeared and presented himself as the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament scriptures, some of the Jews accepted him. A multitude of the Jews accepted him, but most did not. That's the historical reality. The minority who accepted him have their core identity, at least under the new covenant, going back to the 12 apostles 
who are appointed like the 12 tribes as the representatives of the Israel of God that God was now going to create. And uh, they lived in faithfulness to the promises, but it's right at that point with the coming of Jesus that the paths diverge. Some of them accepted and became a part of the church. Some of them rejected and uh, continued on as the Jewish people. Now, here's one thing you need to understand. We have this idea that that all happened during the ministry of Jesus, and it was like over and done, and after that there was only opposition between Christians and Jews. History tells us that was not the case. The Christian mission to the Jews lasted with decreasing fullness for about 400 years. The earliest Christians were all Jews, and there were a decreasing number, but every uh, 100 years or so, there was more than just a sliver of people coming out of the Jewish nation and becoming a part of the church. We know that from simple things like at the end of the second century, we have so few writings, but one of them is called the Dialogue, uh, uh, Justin Martyr's dry Dialogue with Trypho, who was a Jewish man. It, it's a dialogue between a Christian, Justin Martyr, and uh, this Jewish man, and it goes through all the ways in which Martyr was attempting to show him that the Jewish Messiah was, in fact, Jesus Christ. So this, this was something that was a hot topic for a long time. In fact, it was about 200 years before the Christians in the Roman Empire equaled the number of Jews that there were. Before that, they were a minority, and then at that point, they began to overtake them. Now, what I want to note from this basic idea is I'd like to summarize what the Bible has to say about our relationship with the Jewish people. It's kind of given us in snapshot form here to this one church. It also tells us something about what will go on during the church age. And uh, I'd like to do it by reading what the Apostle Paul said, because Paul's words are more of a commentary on God's purpose for the Jewish people uh, during the church age. Uh, they're going to show uh, something on the screen behind me, and it says at the top, the mystery of Israel's salvation. That's the heading in the English Standard Version of this paragraph. You need to know headings were not included in the writing of the apostles. They are added later for us to divide up a book and understand it. But these words are not inspired, but it is a description of what is the uh, uh, content of what follows. Here's what Paul said. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now let me add a little bit that's not on the screen, just so you get a flavor. Paul goes on and says, as regards the gospel, they the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake, your being the church to whom he is writing. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, he's speaking to Christians, just as you were formerly disobedient, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order but that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience to 
that he may have mercy on all. Now, what this passage does, it gives us kind of, in brief, an overview of God's purposes for the Jewish people during the present time. He says three things here, and I think the next slide will show them at the bottom. They are just the three points I want to make. He says that most of the Jewish people will reject Jesus during the present age. I mean the age between the first and second coming of Christ, the time period of the church. Most will reject him. It says, secondly, that some of the Jewish people will accept him during the church age. And thirdly, most of the Jewish people will accept him at his return. Now, the first thing we're told is that most of the Jewish people are going to reject him during the present age. Paul refers to a partial hardening of Israel. And these are important words. It, it comes from Isaiah because Isaiah was sent to the people at a point where they were about to fall into exile. The temple was about to be destroyed because of their disobedience. It predicts excuse me, that there's going to be a um, remnant of the Jewish people who will return afterwards. And he's telling them specific things. But in fulfillment of his entire ministry, in which he was told that his preaching would cause some to become hardened, the physical descendants of Jacob, Israel, become hardened during the time after Christ comes, at least many of them, they decided that he didn't fulfill the promises made about the Messiah. They decided that they would continue to look for a Messiah to come. Now today, only a small minority of Jewish people expect a literal Messiah. Most of them either don't believe it at all or they simply believe that the Jewish nation is the Messiah, the anointed people that are going to bring blessing to the world or something like that. Most of them don't, but at this time, most of the Jews believed in the Messiah, and they, they diverged over whether Jesus was the Messiah or not. And this is the historical reality that's now been played out for 2,000 years. In the intervening time, the historical relationships have changed between all the peoples of the world, and particularly between Christians and Jews. As the church grew, by, like I said, by about the third century, the number of Christians outnumbered the total Jewish population, and what happened then is, as often happens, political power comes with greater size, and when uh, the Christians became politically powerful, uh, the Christian church, largely, for a period of time, mistreated the Jews. And that happened for a long time. We should look back on that with great regret, even though it's, it's still existing or lingering with us today. In fact, it's the last generation. The Nazis attempted to annihilate the Jews and killed about one-third of the world's Jewish population at that point. And I'm not saying the Nazis were Christians, but unfortunately, in their teachings, they drew upon a lot of inappropriate teachings of some Christians in the past to justify something that has no justification in the mistreatment of the Jews. So true-thinking Christians should have no acceptance of anti-Semitism. The idea that the Jews are evil and wrong and ought to be hated or mistreated should be completely foreign to Christians. After all, if Jesus is the Messiah and we are right, we are the natural-born children of the Old Testament religion, the ancient Hebrew religion, the core of which was preserved by the Jewish people, or many of them, before the coming of Christ, and children should not hate their parents. So it's completely out of place for Christians to do that. 
On the other hand, neither should thinking Christians have any idea or, or any conception that the Jewish people are right no matter what they do, like some people have of Israel today, as though they could do no wrong because they're God's chosen people. Again, God's chosen people was not simply all the physical descendants of Abraham. They're given no promises. It is only the physical descendants of Abraham who also believe the promises. But we need to notice that while there is this prediction that there will be a hardening of Israel, a judicial hardening, so that during the church age, the majority of the Jewish people do not accept Jesus as the Messiah. There's also the distinct teaching that that hardening is only partial. In fact, Paul starts that chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, by saying, what do we say then? Has God rejected his people? By no means, he says. I myself am an Israelite. And he simply points out that he's a person who is part of the physical descendants of Abraham, but he has been saved through Jesus the Messiah, and that there are others like him, and we know that there was a constant influx of Jewish people into the church for the first couple of centuries. So the hardening is only partial, and uh, though they are very much a minority, there is going to be a constant influx, we might think of it as a trickle today, of Jewish people into the church throughout the church age. He, he pictures that in the book of Revelation by the specific promise given to one church that the synagogue in their city will have some experience, something will happen that will bring them in large to come to the church and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So that church, maybe uniquely, was promised that by their faithful witness to their Jewish friends and relatives and neighbors, co-workers, despite the opposition that they were experiencing, it would have some kind of dramatic effect in a uh, return or a restoration of these Jewish people in the city of Philadelphia to themselves. But it also becomes a picture of the fact that throughout the church age, we can expect that Jewish people will come into the church. And that does happen, and we hear about it, and some of the teachers in the church today are quite famously Jewish, ethnically Jewish people. But the third thing we have to note is that there's a distinct promise in the New Testament that at the end of this age, before Christ returns, there will be a sudden and large influx of Jewish people into the church. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean in this way, look back at the preceding verse. It means in this way that I'm about to describe. This is how uh, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's an important teaching of the New Testament that at the end of this age, when the deliverer comes from Zion, when Christ returns, there's going to be a massive conversion of Jewish people. I think that all Israel does not mean every single living Israelite at that point, like all Jewish people without um, exception, but it means all those elect Israelites who will be brought to that point of being not only physical descendants of Abraham, but also spiritual descendants of Abraham because they share his faith in the promises, they will be brought to Christ, a massive conversion at that point is more likely, but um, the whole idea is that during this age, here's what we can expect. Most will reject. 
some will accept, and then most will accept before the return of Christ. Now, what's the point of all that? Well, first, it had a, a specific point to these people in Philadelphia. Jesus goes on to speak to them and essentially to tell them to continue to be faithful in their witness, not only to Jewish people, but because of the historical situation I told you and the opposition of the synagogue in the city of Philadelphia. He writes to them and he says, you need to continue this. And I will keep you, he says. I will protect your witness through the fiery trial that is about to come, which may refer to the first empire-wide persecution that began under Diocletian at the end of the first century and lasted only a short time. Or it may refer to something in the city of Philadelphia that we historically don't know. But something was going to happen in which they would come under severe distress, and through that, God would protect them that they might continue spiritually to witness for him. And then he gives them a unique promise. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And that's a picture of the eternal temple that God is building, which Jesus speaks of, which the apostles speak of, which we who are Christians are meant to be individual stones that are in this temple where God will be present forever in the new heavens and new earth. And he gives an image, you will be like a, a pillar. And the idea is, unlike things that might come and go out of the presence of the temple, you will be a part of the temple. You will be permanently in the presence and the immediate access of the king of the universe himself. So they're given these unique promises. But what is our relationship with the Jewish people meant to be like? We don't have this distinct promise that we will have a large influx of Jewish converts or anything like that, though we are recipients of the words of Paul that we will see a trickle of those if we are faithful to God. But what is our relationship like with the Jewish people? Let me just mention briefly three ideas that flow out of this. The first one is this. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, then we are the natural heirs of the Old Testament religion, the promises given to Abraham and confirmed under the Old Covenant and expanded. We are the heirs of those things. And if the Jewish people at the present time have rejected them, then we are like um, children who have rebellious parents. You can picture that idea that sometimes is painfully seen in society where uh, there's a child being faithful and seeking to live a faithful life as he goes through life, but his parents are wild, irresponsible, harmful in their lifestyle. If that's the case, then our responsibility is to call them back to obedience. It's the responsibility of the Christian church, as it has always been and will be throughout this age, to call the Jewish people back to the promises that were originally given to their forefathers, which we have come to share. We can mostly expect rejection now, but there will be eventual acceptance. And if that image is true, secondly, then that we are faithful children with wayward parents who are wandering, then we can expect our relationship with the Jewish people that we meet in life, whether they're people we work with, friends of ours, family members in some cases, we can expect our relationship with them to be awkward. I don't know any other way to describe it. It's going to be awkward because we are saying that at the very heart of things is a road that diverged when we accepted Jesus as the Messiah and you, as a people at least, rejected him. 
So we should stay away from adopting ideas that Christians sometimes do, like, well, God has special plans for the Jewish people. We don't need to worry about them because in the end they'll all be saved. And we also don't need to um, establish any ideas that I sometimes hear that how could you ever reject a faithful, serious Jewish person because, after all, they're God's chosen people. Again, the promises were not given to people simply as physical descendants. We should faithfully acknowledge that in their present attitude, they persist in what the majority did in the beginning, and that is they do not accept that Jesus is the Messiah, and we need to call them back to that. There is a man who's still alive named Eli Wiesel. Eli is short for Eliezer. He was a Hungarian Jew. He was put in a concentration camp with his aged parents, I believe his sister and his young wife, and all of his family members perished, and he lived through it. He saw unspeakable horror. He decided he would never talk about it again. He became a, a journalist and kept it all inside, moved to France. And at one point, about 10 years after the end of World War II, when he was still only around 30 years of age, he uh, made an appointment with a prominent Roman Catholic clergyman in France. And the reason he made the appointment was he, he wanted to ask him some questions, but he really wanted to be introduced to a member of the government that this uh, person knew. I think he was a Monsignor that he knew. And uh, he had an ulterior motive in meeting with the man. He met with this man, and this Catholic uh, priest was, all he would talk about was Jesus. When he found out he was, was Jewish, he spoke to him about Jesus, the Messiah. And, and, and it, the way Elie Vassell describes it, it was like uh, he, he spoke of his name like you would experience cold water rushing out of a stream in a desert. And um, it made him so mad. He was furious until finally it broke, like a dam burst inside of him. And he tells the story of how he just yelled at this man. He told him, you Christians talk about Jesus and how much he suffered. And I watched thousands of people suffer. I know six million people who suffered more than your Jesus suffered. And he, he was so furious, he threw his papers down and he, he left. He walked out of the apartment and went to the elevator. And a minute later, he felt this priest put his arm around him. And he pulled him back into the room. And, and the priest sat there and wept for a long time. He just wept and he said, I'm sorry. He said, you have to tell me about this suffering that you're speaking of. And um, eventually they became friends. Elie Vassell never became a Christian. Although he was brought back to faith in God, he had become a totally non-religious Jew, but he was brought back to faith in God, he said. They became friends for the rest of uh, the priest's life. And uh, he, he, in that room, says that he felt so sick at having made this godly old man cry so. And, and, and the man talked to him more about Jesus. And what happened is, as a result of being opened up by that man, he wrote a book. He decided he would tell his story. He wrote a book that is entitled Night, N-I-G-H-T. And it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's only about 100 pages long. I made all my children read it in high school. It describes the unspeakable horror of what was done to the Jewish people. 
And I didn't have them read that because I want them to think the Jews are different from any other people who have experienced genocide. That has happened in different places. But simply because in recent history, there was an attempt that has been going on throughout history to kill these people. At the end of his life, Elie Wiesel said that priest was the first time after the Holocaust that I felt someone loved me. Now, what I'm saying is, is not that that's a perfect story of Christian testimony to the Jews, but it was a testimony to a Jewish man. It's not that Elie Wiesel was one of those who became a believer. He did not, at least to this point, and he's quite aged now. But it means that as we Christians go through life, we must be faithful to continue in our awkward testimony to the Jewish people. They were the ones ethnically given the promises. And while the promises do not believe belong simply to an ethnic group, they were the ethnic group to whom they were given. And God says that he has a place for that ethnic group in which he's going to bring them back to faith in the promises at some point. And that will be the point when the Israel of God becomes complete. When what God intended when he made the promise to Abraham that said, in you and in your descendant shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations will again be brought back and blessed through the descendant of Abraham, the Jewish Messiah. And that will include all the nations of the earth, including the Jews. Let's pray. Again, Father, as we come before you, we thank you that you are a God whose purposes are so much higher than us and farther than we conceive, and yet you unfold a plan that covers the whole earth. Most of us know someone who is a Jewish person, though despite the fact that we live in uh, a place, the Detroit area, where there are more Jews than many other places, and we live in the country that has almost an equal number of Jews to those living in the state of Israel, Despite that fact, we know so little about them. And uh, those of us who have friends and relatives and co-workers perhaps are often very reluctant to speak to them, but we pray that you would open our mouths. You would make us wise. And you would allow us to be faithful to one of the things you have called us to do during the present age. And that you yourself would bring faith. 